Welcome to the Lee Sloan Podcast. I believe that ideas and conversations have consequences, consequences that impact generations to come. Thanks for joining me today. Together, let's be brave enough to think, brave enough to feel, brave enough to change the world, one brave conversation at a time. If you've ever studied the art of argument, maybe you've been in a debate club or something like that, you'll know that there are very specific ways that we often get it wrong, especially in common conversation, when we engage in any form of an argument. There are certain ways that our logic becomes, all of a sudden, not so logical. But these methods sometimes actually work when we're talking to people if they don't know the logical fallacies. So you may have heard some of these in school, or maybe you should have. In any case, I want to give you a quick refresher, very quick, not anything uh, overly detailed, but on just a few of these well-known, what we call logical fallacies. So the first one is ad hominem. And ad hominem basically means to attack the man. It's basically being a jerk and name-calling, okay? And so you see a lot of people doing this, um, calling the other side a name and, and really demeaning them. It really has nothing to do with their argument. It just has to do with who they are. And that's going to be a little bit similar to what we talked about today, but we're going to narrow in on something more specific. So the ne- another one would be the straw man. And that would be mischaracterizing the opposite side. So, you know, when we're thinking about the argument, sometimes we create this straw man, if you will, this this foe that we're coming up against when, when nobody really believes that argument that we're creating in our head that's the opposite side. But that argument fits um, and helps us to form our argument. So, you know, we, we create this sort of straw man, and we, we do this commonly. And then there's a slippery slope. The slippery slope is assuming that if, if, we, um, if we make this leap in judgment that it's necessarily going to lead to another and another and another and it's going to lead to the degradation of our society and all kinds of things. And this is a really tempting one to, to do when it, we're talking about political uh, you know, judgment calls because that often does happen and that often is the case in a political environment. But it is a logical fallacy. And then we have circular argument. Now, this one really baffles me because it seems to just pretty much throw out all logic because, you know, you're basically asking someone, what's the reason that you have for why you believe what you believe? And, and basically they, they just say the same thing that they believe again. It's just the reason is the same as the conclusion. I believe what I believe because I believe it. And <laughs> it's just on and on and on. Um, so that's a really frustrating one. And another one would be the red herring tactic. And this is kind of like, you know, in, in that movie where he goes, squirrel, <laughs> and, um, and all the dogs stop and look. It's the squirrel tactic. It's the art of distraction from the real issue at hand. And, and politicians are really good at this. They're really good at misdirecting and diverting attention away from the question that was asked and the, the issue at hand onto something else. Okay, so these are just a few of them. There are more of them. But there's one really particular thing that I've been noticing in our society that I don't think has been articulated clearly enough and definitely not applied nearly as well as it should be. And, you know, you could make the case that some of the other ones qualify for this, but I think we need to give this one a category all of its own. Now, I know that this has probably happened to you no matter what race or socioeconomic background you are. 
Have you ever wanted to say something and you were you were thinking about making a logical point in a discussion, um, especially something that might have been controversial, but before you said it, you had that, you know, frontal lobe moment that we thankfully all have in our brains that, that, you know, maybe it wouldn't come across so well coming out of your lips. And so you refrain from saying it, even though it was a good solid topic. So what stopped you wasn't that your point wasn't good and you would have actually contributed to the conversation, but instead you knew that the point coming from your mouth would immediately be rejected. And and because it would be rejected because of maybe whether it was your race or your background or your political affiliation or whatever that was that you can say that. Now, the most obvious example of this is the racial issue when we make comments. Have you ever wondered why it's so vastly different? The reaction that we get is so vastly different based on what our race happens to be or what it's perceived to be, okay? So I wanted to talk to my friend Jane. She had actually a lot to say about this. And so let's take a listen. So I'm Korean, 100%, although I grew up, like, everybody thinks I'm Japanese or Chinese or something other than Korean most Mm -hmm. of the time. (laughs) It's really funny. Mm -hmm. Um, So I grew up with my parents constantly, like, all my life. It was repeated over and over and over to me that because I'm Korean... So I'm minority, plus I'm female, so I had to be better than the best to, for anyone to be, like, to where they couldn't disregard or ignore me, you know? Um, also... Now, this is what you experienced, or this is what you were told? What I was told okay. over and over and over again, all okay. my life. Okay. <laughs> as a child. <laughs> like, throughout my entire childhood, I, even now, you know, it was always, they were, there was, like, super hypersensitivity to racism everybody was just racist to them (laughs) like that was their perception yeah Mm -hmm. and that was their Mm go-to for anything that wasn't that felt that made them feel bad in any way okay or that didn't go their way or they didn't get the job or they didn't you know whatever it was Mm -hmm. It was racist. And same with me. Anything that happened to me at school, if I didn't get something or I wasn't, you know, something I didn't get the best of whatever, Mm -hmm. it was because I was like, it was because I wasn't white or I wasn't Japanese because we grew up in, I grew up in Hawaii. So over there, actually, Japanese was more like that there were more Japanese people and they were the Mm -hmm. ones that were usually rich and Mm -hmm. things like that. So actually... The white people, or haolis that we called them, Mm -hmm. were more of the minority there in Hawaii. Um, And so I grew up, and as I got older, you know, and I was always a little bit rebellious to that, to to Mm -hmm. that idea. So Um, put you in this mindset, like, I should be a victim, kind of, like, mm -hmm. I I need to expect to be a victim? Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, totally. I've gotten to the point where I kind of... Like, with all the things, like the racism and the, all the political correctness nowadays mm-hmm. over the years, I'll say things like, uh, yeah, but I can say that because I'm Asian, you know, yeah. <laughs> or things like that. After you say something you know mm-hmm. that right. you probably wouldn't say yeah. if you were white or, or Yeah, and, you know, it's I found it to be a good icebreaker, especially among other white people because... Um, 
they are so hypersensitive now because they're on like hyper alert because yeah. they have to be careful. Um, like, you know, like their black or Asian or whatever mm-hmm. color friends mm-hmm. make a joke about something. Like, I can see them trying to decide: is it okay for me to laugh? <laughs> Am I supposed to laugh? Yeah, or right. Is it more rude to laugh or not to laugh? <laughs> Now, you'll hear Jane talk about this idea. She says, I can say that because I'm Korean. And I think it's funny to all of us because, you know, even if we're white, we we have this opposite subconscious thought. I can't say that because I'm white. Now, it should stand to reason that if we're moving toward a society that's more enlightened and less and less concerned about things like race, that we should move on toward, you know, judging people's words and their arguments equally based on their own merit and logic, not based on the person who happened to be raising the point. And the principle should stand far beyond race, we would think. And maybe we would even say that. But we make judgments about statements that people say all the time based on not only a person's race, but a person's, maybe their sexual orientation or their socioeconomic status or their political persuasion. And so it happens so often that I think it really needs a logical fallacy category all its own. And so I'm going to call it the identity fallacy. An identity fallacy is the error of judging the merit of a person's argument by some identifiable quality about the person who spoke it, not the argument itself. And anytime someone takes into account the personal attributes of the person making the statement to judge the validity of the statement, that's an identity fallacy. So, you know, this is such a natural thing, a natural human tendency we do. We do it all the time without even thinking. And it's really easy to spot it in other people, but really hard to notice it in ourselves. Now, let's be real. The practice of jumping to conclusions about what a person says based on what we know about them is actually kind of helpful in our everyday lives. It's natural and it's even wise not to put a lot of stock into what someone says if we don't trust them or they have less knowledge about a topic than we do. This, This is important. But when we want to talk about a logical argument and we want to challenge people in their thinking, the person's background has nothing to do with the true value of what they're saying. And I think 90% of us would agree with that, and yet we can still not help ourselves. We do this anyway. So, you know, in this new millennium, we're often less focused on facts and figures, and we're more and more interested in stories. We're a story generation. We're a story culture. And this is not a bad thing altogether. It helps us understand each other in a more culturally diverse society and if you know the stories of another person it's a great way to quickly and effectively understand them so while our tendency towards storytelling might be a good practice for enriching the fabric of society it can end up causing this logical breakdown in our ability to reason and to argue effectively it makes us kind of sort of (laughs) stupid and it impedes our ability to problem solve especially when we try to problem solve in a group as in politics we're accustomed to reading the opinions of people we've never met over social media this is another dynamic we have going rather than chatting with the guy down the street and becoming familiar with his particular story which is what we really want to do 
we have to make assumptions about people from what we see. The first thing we see is the color of someone's skin or that person's physical attributes or their, you know, relationship status that they put. Um, We see the type of things they like, the type of clothing that they wear. We hear the sort of language coming out of their mouths, if it's an auditory thing, and even the accent with which they speak. And we make huge assumptions about this person's uh, identity based on these things. And, and maybe their level of intelligence, you know. Have you ever heard somebody speak with a British accent? You, you commonly assume that they know more. Um, and I've written before on the caution against labels and assumptions. But I think, we're, I think we're all aware of them, but it doesn't really stop us from doing it. So how do we break this wrong-headed cycle of assumption when we have no mechanism to catch ourselves in the fallacy of it? We pride ourselves on the pursuit of equality in our nation. Just think about how much the principles of logic contribute to our historical sense of equality. See, theoretically, any person in our nation, young or old, rich or poor, famous or unknown, should be able to come to the table of conversation with something valuable to offer. But these kind of ideals begin to break down every time we accidentally engage in this identity fallacy. Maybe you've seen those those videos that you watch on YouTube, like it's these gotcha videos, right? And and it, they put forward statements. I remember from from the last election, they put forward statements, and they would they would quote maybe like Hitler's speeches, right? And sometimes they would attribute them to Donald Trump, you know, and then other times they would attribute those same words to Hillary Clinton, and people would totally be like. If they, if they were a Trump fan, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. If they were a Hillary fan, it would be the same thing, right? Because we want to agree with who we already agree with. <laughs> and depending on the person's politics and, and what they thought, who they thought said it, they would just praise it without even stopping to consider any of the logic behind what was being said. It's just really a lazy way of arguing. It causes us not to have to think, but it, to immediately, in a snap way, make a judgment call rather than really comprehend and deal with the problem at hand. If you've ever, you know, been to marriage counseling or study counseling, they teach you about how to talk to your spouse as if the problem isn't like on them, you know, it's not embodied in the other person, but to get the problem out in front of both of you and say, hey, we're going to work on this problem side by side. It's the problem that's the issue. It's not the other person that's the issue. And with both of you facing the problem, it's much easier to tackle and much less likely that someone's going to be injured in the process, you know? It's like getting, it's like seeing a dangerous spider on someone's arm and, you know, instead of starting to whack them with an iron or something, um, you would try to get it off their arm, right? You want to get it away from the person. So our problems with race or political dissension or, or gender issues or anything else like this won't be truly addressed until we can get the problem and the issues out in front of us, treating them for what they are. They're problems. They're obstacles. They're not problems with skin, hair, and teeth, but they're problems that we, side by side, can work together to solve. But if we continue with the barriers that this identity fallacy creates, we are going to end up silencing 
people in our society. It's inevitable. You know, in the sexual debate, um, people who aren't maybe experienced with different forms of sexuality will feel silenced, um, you know, if they don't have any experience with it. In the racial debate, maybe we end up silencing people who are part of the majority because, you know, they don't get it. In the poverty debate, we silence maybe people who have money because they don't know what it's like to be poor. And facing generational differences, depending on who you are, you're probably going to silence whatever generation you feel just doesn't get it and doesn't understand. Probably the generation that you're not a part of. And so we end up with this soft type of social censorship created by this quiet but very persistent social pressure to shut up about stuff when you don't fit the social profile. And by doing this, we are ending up having weaker and fewer conversations. And weaker and fewer conversations leads to a widening, gaping hole of understanding about each other and understanding as a collective society. As of late, there have been some vocal, you know, minority individuals who've said some things that have questioned the stereotypical view of their culture, you know, especially racial minorities, people like Candace Owens or Larry Elder or even Denise D'Souza. And then we, we've had some, even some gay people who have started questioning the rhetoric that is expected of them, people like Dave Rubin or Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, whatever you think of these people, I believe that part of the reason that their message resonates so well and the reason that people listen to them is that they are uniquely equipped to express a dissenting non-PC view and get away with it because of their outward identity. Uh, of course, they face another kind of scrutiny for betraying the feeling like, you know, other people in their group are betraying them or, or that they're being betrayed by their group because they're acting in a way that's unexpected. But this human phenomenon is really nothing new. In the old days, our labels might have looked different. They might have been slave and freeman, aristocrat or commoner, clergy or layperson. We think we're so sophisticated now, and we prize ourselves on a sophisticated web of terms that we lay one over another to describe one another, and they have some value. But when we engage in a logical argument, when we're trying to solve problems and come together and work together, we really need to be diligent to put these types of things aside. And that laziness of judging someone based on who they are will cause us always to shift toward a more identity-oriented approach to lead us down a path to more and more ignorance, fewer and fewer productive conversations, and less and less understanding. Ultimately, I think that looking at each other one-dimensionally like this is demeaning and an assault to our intelligence as humans. Jane had some last little thoughts on that whole feeling of the dignity being stripped from her victim mm. because I did overcame that, did this. Did that feel demeaning in a way or how did it, how I, did you describe that feeling of having victimhood placed upon you? I don't know. I think there's a certain part amount of like my own personal sense of dignity 
yeah, you know, human dignity where I'm like, you know, where I feel like, no, you know, like I want some ownership, you know? Mm -hmm. I would agree that it is time that we own our conversations and that when we own our responsibility in the conversation, it actually does give us dignity. And I think the easiest way to test how much you're being influenced by identity is to ask yourself, what would I think if this argument or logic was coming out of another person's mouth? That's how you can test, you know, if you're falling into this trap of an identity fallacy. You can ask yourself, what type of person would have to say this in order to make me okay with this? And if your answer changes based on the identity of the speaker, honestly, you need to question the way that you come to conclusions. You may have an identity paradigm that needs to shift because you never know when the wisest insight that you might need might be coming out of the mouth of someone that you might first reject by simple virtue of their identity. It takes a really honest person to take a look at how they view things. Now, somebody that a lot of us do respect, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said this, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. It's this beautiful line that most of us know that we can all apply equally as human beings. Well, I have my own version. It's slightly less lofty and less poetic, but true nonetheless. I have a dream that my grandchildren will one day live in a world in which their words will not be weighed down by the color of their skin, their political party, their gender, their economic status, or anything of the sort, but only by the content, the logic, and the clear articulation of their arguments. Thanks for listening. I hope you will be brave enough to share this episode with your circle of influence. You make such a difference and the things that you share can ignite some really great and thoughtful conversations. Don't ever be afraid to speak the truth, no matter who you are or where you come from. See you next time.